Welcome to The Blind Spot, a podcast where we explore human instinctual drives through the lens of the Enneagram. My name is John Lukovich, sexual self-prez, four-wing five, four, five, eight, trifix. And I'm Karen Ance, self-prez social, three-wing two, three, seven, one, trifix. Welcome to The Blind Spot. John and I are here ready to pick up a conversation that we started last week about these different needs of the instinctual drives. And one of the things that I wanted to start with, John, is that I really appreciate the uh, referral you gave me to this book, Instinctual Intelligence by Theodore, is it Usatinsky? Is that how you say his name? I don't uh, know. It's, yeah, good. Your guess is as good as mine. All right, all right. You said Sinsky well, or something like that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm reading this book and, you know, the question that I keep coming back to because is like, why am I so excited about this project? Like, why is what we're talking about? Why do I feel like this matters? And there was this one sentence that instinctual intelligence is the ultimate form of preventative medicine. And that really resonated with me. And as a physician who has a practice called Well Essence MD that prioritizes health and wellness and preventative medicine, I'm just like, this is why I care about this because mm -hmm. I, nobody's said it that way. Yeah. But I really believe that instinctual intelligence is the ultimate form of preventative medicine. And everything that has led me to this place of mindfulness-based stress reduction and nonviolent communication and all of this is how do we deal with instinctual energy? And you've come to the same conclusion, I think, from a different avenue. What do you have to say about that? Like, how do we deal with, how do what I have to say? Well, does about it resonate we... with you? Like, did oh, you yeah, love totally. that line? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I just love this part. And I just want to start with here today because he says, whatever we do in this world, managing economic resources, raising families, creating meaningful art, protecting the natural environment, or seeking authentic spiritual real realization, a more evolved instinctual intelligence will help us address the critical challenges faced by every member of the human race. It will also provide us with unprecedented opportunities for the realization of human potential. So I'm noticing that my high side of three, like just vibrates, you know, with that big sun in my chest when I think about this work and that whole, you know, realization of human potential. I mean, I get mm -hmm. really excited about that. And I know you don't get as excited about things as me. And you're like here to bring us down when I'm getting too high. So, but I mean, it matters, right? Maybe you can totally. just bring us out of the depths, even if it doesn't elevate us into transcendence. Oh, I mean, yeah, it's uh, my point of view or like the way I would express it, the lens of my type bias or whatever is just makes this more real. It makes yeah. this more three-dimensional and less less occupied with different narratives about what we're doing and brings us into like a, a, a more sincere humanity. And mm. yeah, absolutely. It's everything instinctual. Yeah. Like it's really the foundation for everything. Yeah. And it's almost like if you look at any reactivity that anybody has about anything, it's responding to an instinctual energy. Everything. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, what's going to be so fun when we start interviewing people because if you can just notice when you're reactive and you can just ask yourself this question, hmm, which instinct is under threat in this moment, 
there's almost an opportunity to create that little space that Viktor Frankl calls, you know, between the stimulus and the response. And there might be a little more opportunity for grounding, a little more opportunity for choice. So I think that this is a really effective way to use that prefrontal cortex, which is our human thinking part of the brain, to deal with all of this dysregulated amygdala shit that just comes from our basic animal natures. You know, last week we talked about the different needs of the three different instincts and where we thought we'd go today is starting to talk about how we identify with these instincts and what the blind spot actually is. So where would you like to start with that, John? Yeah, so I, I think um, the most important thing to understand about both the Enneagram as well as the instinctual drives and why they're paired together is that we become psychologically identified with these instinctual drives. As we talked about last time, the instincts are motivational drives to meet specific biological and emotional needs. And because we are organisms that are in a in you know stuck in, in a temporal experience, our needs are ever renewing because our bodies need new stuff. It needs re renewal, it needs rejuvenation, and things are always fighting against uh, the force of entropy. And so what this means for us is that there's always phenomenon to be identified with within ourselves. Like the reason that, that in inner work, we require a lot of stillness and a lot of learning to listen to deeper parts of ourselves is because the energies and impulses that uh, arise, the hungers, the appetites, the emotions around those appetites, um, and the qualities of attention that we've been trained ourselves just through life to, that we become habituated to, are all really compelling uh, and ever-renewing. And they're, there's, they've, got, they've got kind of like a crude quality uh, within our awareness. They're very like loud and overt and obvious. And so we become identified with them. We see them as not only important for our survival, but as a, like a basis for our sense of self and identity. And Pause so a minute, it's, John. Pause. I'm going to notice that my kids just flushed the toilet and Kevin's going to have a coronary because that's going to be on that little part. So can you remember what you just said in the last 15 seconds? And I'm going to have you pause and you're going to say that part again. Do you remember? Or did I interrupt your flow too much? Uh, I was kind of in flow. Can you just refresh? Yeah, I know, right? Fuck. Okay. I just know that it's loud and I know that he's going to hate it. So, <laughs> okay. Um, where I think you should pick up is that, um, oh shit, I'm so sorry. That was I okay. can, and I, and then, you know, and this is all experimenting. Like when this stuff happens, do I pause you or do I just leave it there? And then we s listen to it again. You know, it's all learning how we're going to do this. Yeah. Or do we just leave it and say, I mean, I hey. Think we should just, I think we should just leave it. We're like, recording. You see, but, but this is, okay, Kevin, you're creating an object relation with me and my type one mother because I don't like it when you're unhappy with all of these noises that are in our podcast. But I want you to be pleased with our production. So, okay, now that I've processed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know. I should let I, John be in flow. Yeah, I think, you know, I think that there will be toilet flushings and I live in Brooklyn. There's going to be music inevitably. Like there's there's constant planes uh, honking. I just think like. Let's be in the flow. 
Let's be in the flow. And okay. I mean, if a listener hears of toilet flush, you know, they, it's, you know, they'll. We live in a house where there are toilets. We're talking, we're talking instincts. We're talking yeah, right. human, <laughs> human stuff. So we should probably even leave a part of that in if we leave the toilet Yeah, we can even leave in. this in. Yeah. I know. This is amazing. So this is what I love about it. Because, you know, I don't think that this podcast should be too formal because instincts are not formal. They're just happening. I think right. even watching my reactivity to the toilet flushing is funny because that's my social instinct. That's my whole, like, what are people going to say in here? And even what is Kevin? And, and for people who don't know what object relations are, I have a type one perfectionistic mother. And so every time I let down Kevin in an audio way, I just go into a shame spiral and have to dig myself out. So, you know, it's fun to look at that. And, and just for any listeners who uh, can't see what we're doing, I record this from my toilet. So... <laughs> That's awesome. Yes, so, we need a toilet pot. Okay. Yeah. So, uh, what was I was saying about? You were talking the... about identification before oh, I yeah. totally lost presence, and that's a great example of what losing presence looks like too. Yeah. So, I mean, then we just so get back learning. on the we get back on the toilet, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah. So what I was saying is is with these impulses, these appetites, and the the very complex and all-encompassing emotional and mental associations and physical associations that we have with each of these drives constantly hijacks our attention. And part of like why stillness and sensation practice and all those things is so important is that you learn to be able to hold the experience of your ever-active, ever-renewing body and instinctual drives with this deeper sense that there may be something that we could call presence or essence that that I also am and I'm not just the agendas of my instinctual goal you know my instinctual drives and their their goals and so part of what happens in early childhood through whatever you know whether it's a positive thing or negative thing who knows but for whatever reason you know early childhood you know being an infant into being a toddler is the development of not only basic personality structures, but it's it's really like um, uh, creating the associations and the skills necessary to take care of our instinctual drives. It's like the instinctual drives form in early infancy because they're about how we take greater autonomy and how we take care of our needs instead of having them completely outsourced to our parents. And so in that process, for whatever reason, whether it's something positively reinforced or something is tra traumatized, for whatever reason, the needs of certain instinctual drives come to feel more at the center of our identity versus the other instinctual drives, which some feel like they are attending to certain instinctual drives and instinctual needs, feels like it is gonna pull away attention from the dominant instinct so one of them becomes a dominant instinct. It comes to sense like, it's not only that this is important for my survival, but my very sense of self and identity and personhood is dependent on fulfilling and pursuing and reinforcing these instinctual goals. Meanwhile, another instinctual drive feels like giving too much attention to it, investing too much emotional energy into it, putting too much time into it is gonna take us away from attending to and putting energy toward our dominant instinct. So it feels like it is at odds. It feels like if we give energy to what's called the blind spot instinct, this, this 
le- this instinct that we have less skill around, that we have less awareness around, and that we don't want to give as much airtime to, that if we give it airtime, if we give it attention, and we give it time, it feels like it's going to either dilute the dominant instinct or it's going to somehow sabotage the dominant instinct's agenda. Um, dynamic, this is called instinctual stacking because one is it's stacked one on top of the other. One is a dominant, one is a middle, and one is blind or last. This stacking is the is at the basis of the personality structure and that our Enneagram type is in reaction positively or negatively to this instinctual stacking. And before, you know, I'll shut up, but one last thing I want to just add in there is that there's this middle instinct. Generally speaking, we have some skillfulness with it, and it's usually taken in kind of a a casual manner. We don't have a lot of emotional charge. Um, And usually out of the three instinctual needs, we're usually pretty good at doing, taking care of two of them. Um, Even though it doesn't generate the kind of suffering that the dominant or the blind spot do generate, Nonetheless, it is still really packed full of interference from the personality. So sometimes it's talked about as if the middle instinct is just fine or is free of ego. And it's got its own stuff too. And so that's the instinctual stacking and the, you know, the, the blind spot um, feels like it is going to sabotage the dominant instinct. Yeah. And one of the things that I want to highlight around what you said is that You know, there are two things that are really leading to whatever the instinctual stack is. The first is this experience-dependent development of them based on what happened to us in childhood. And then on top of that, there's the impact of emotionally intense traumatic experiences that can occur at any point in our lives. Mm -hmm. So I think that like naming trauma is really important at this point because Mm -hmm. Trauma is something that I think we're learning a lot more about and recognizing that it's these emotionally charged events that start to create memories that then lead to habitual behaviors and ways that we um, determines what we give our attention to. And all of this is to ultimately meet these instinctual needs. So one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot is as I think about my stack And I think about the fact that I'm sexual blind. As I think about my childhood and I think about emotional experiences, like I was definitely raised to think about the sexual instinct as something pretty dangerous. You know, I came from a Roman Catholic family and, you know, my grandmother got pregnant at 16 and my great grandmother got pregnant at 16. And there was all this like family lore around like how this sexual instinct messed up people's lives. Like grandpa got into West Point and then he couldn't go because he got grandma pregnant. And, you know, just being a woman in, you know, I'll just say the classic suburban, you know, society, there's a lot of shame and repression, you know, of this sexual instinct. So for me, it seems pretty obvious that it would be blind for me because it didn't really feel like something that, was safe to rely on that was going to get me what I wanted and needed. Mm -hmm. And coming from an Eastern European background where like my grandfather was an immigrant from Poland, you know, when he came to the United States, I think that there's a lot of this self-preservation instinct kind of wired into my family. And Mm -hmm. I see this a lot in immigrant communities where like people come here and they work so hard. It's like they can make more money here than they did 
in their own country of origin. And it's all about that like American dream, like kind of working your way up and success seems to translate into financial security and like sending your kids to college and entering them into American mainstream, which now they're in social. So as I kind of think about all that, does that seem like a cohesive narrative around how my stacking could have developed? Or do you think it's like more random than that? I I think that I think there's definitely something to that. But I will say that I don't like we don't really know what causes stacking, if it's genetics, epigenetics, if it's environment, excuse me, epigenetics, environment, sorry, my, <laughs> my uh, mic stand fell. Uh, we don't really know. And I, you know, I don't know if it's the case that there is almost always a certain percentage of the population that's always going to turn out to be self-prized and then social and sexual. And that if it's just like um, cultural circumstances tend to bring out a certain milieu, whereas like the United States, it, it does have a lot of self-present energy, but you know, it might be that relative in terms of like population, like maybe Brazil has the same amount of self, like same percentage of, of uh, self-present types relative to the population and same percent proportion of social types and sexual types relative to the population. But because of their culture, uh, they're able to express the sexual instinct more freely. Like I really don't know, but I would I would I would say that uh, my experience was I also you know I I am a sexual type, but I I also grew up um, with from my my sexual blind mother, and my family has a lot of weird sexual shit too. And I don't know if it's be, being a male or what, but uh, that it was also um, seen as something bad and and dangerous. And something I just recently unpacked, um, like just this past week or so, and I've I've shared this with you before that like I felt very unattractive throughout my life, and I've gotten the feedback that like you know especially in the last like I don't know five or more years that I, that's you know how that's not true or whatever, and I can see that more and more, but what I think sort of might've happened in my upbringing was that I internal, my mom used to like sit my brother and I down and like tell these long stories of how bad teenagers were and how bad men were. And, and I think I really internalized as a prepubescent kid that the sexual instinct was like, I didn't have the language for it, but the sexual instinct was like corrupting and bad and vile and like uh, infecting and corrosive and that I think because I identified so much with my sexual energy that I felt that way about myself because of that identification. So I don't really know like why we get dominant or not. I'm at the place where I don't want to make it all a positive thing nor all a negative thing. Well, and I want to say that I think I see structure overlay on top of this. So when we look specifically at type or trifix, you know, I think you have a trifix that's more like attracted to darkness, mm-hmm. whereas mm-hmm. I think that I have a trifix that's more like drawn to the light. Yes. And so if the sexual yeah. energy is portrayed as something that is kind of dark and dangerous, knowing what I know about you and knowing what I know about me, 
it only makes sense that you might claim it in some weird way, but still like yeah. it becomes dominant. Whereas I suppress mm-hmm. it and put it more into a blind area because of my structure. And right. so one of the ideas that I'm having, and I'm so curious when we start talking to people who feel like there was a really healthy modeling of sexuality in their household, my suspicion is that those people will have it in the middle. And I think that those of us that have memories that are like, well, that was kind of messed up. I bet it's either <laughs> dominant or I bet it's suppressed. And yeah, the I other think that sounds right. theory that I have here is I want to talk about the social instinct. So I think that the social instinct from what I've studied about attachment really has a lot to do with the mother-child bond. Mm -hmm, I think that mm -hmm. if you have a mother that can attune and resonate with a child with some reliability, that you're more likely to have social in the middle. And one of my suspicions is that if you either had like an overly anxious, overly concerned mother, or maybe a neglectful or not present or drug addicted or abusive mother that I bet that these people are either going to be social dominant or social blind. That's just another theory that I have. So I want to look at that. And then just to extend this model, if you want to talk about self-pres is like who grew up with like kind of, I feel safe. Like my family doesn't stress about money that much. You know, we, we didn't need a lot, but, you know, we were never starving and scared. Or, um, you know, my neighborhood that I grew up in was generally safe. There weren't bullets flying outside of my, you know, household. So I think that we all have these different traumatic experiences that were completely not of our choosing. And then you're going to have type structure on top of that. So these messed up experiences that we have I bet we're either drawn to it or repelled to it. And I think we'll probably see some pretty interesting things with this. Absolutely. I think, I mean, I, 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 I both strongly concur with what you're describing. And also I'm like, I, I like that, yeah, that we're going to approach it from this, like, let's try to gather data about it because yeah, yeah there's going to be there's a lot a of study here. Right, exactly. We've got to get a 0.5 on our team that knows how to do research. And yeah, we'll be collecting the data and we got to do something with it. If anybody's curious how John and I do this, we sort of like log on, start talking about whatever we're thinking about, realizing that should be be a podcast. And then we actually start. And so sometimes you'll get clips of these conversations that just completely organically happened that we want you to hear about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Yeah, the demonstration. Yeah. So, uh, sound good? Yeah, I love it. And I just, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm thinking about how, like, not one-ish or six-ish this is. Like, we're lacking all the order and precision and planning oh, yeah. and detail. Like, <laughs> so I'm just yeah. wondering if, um, I, I'm just wondering, like, it'd be so fun to get feedback because different types are going to like different styles of podcasting. And I'm just, you know, observing what this is and what this isn't. Yeah, I mean, I just think um, I feel like what we got to was very just honest because it was so just raw what it was. And I think the authenticity is what people will appreciate the most with all this. And, yeah, you know, the vulnerability and like, you know, part of part of what hopefully this podcast will turn into is like a laboratory where people can see it and Mm -hmm. and watch it 
unfold or listen to it unfold or whatever. And so, yeah, like, I think that like, you know, which, which will involve lots of stumbling in the dark and Mm -hmm. kind of goofiness and whatever, but I think toilet flushing and all, all that kind of stuff. But I, I think it'll be cool. John, tell us about instinctual fears. So uh, one of the things that I thought was really important to identify in working with the instincts and writing my book was what are the specific fears that underlie or motivate the instincts when they don't feel regulated, when they don't feel safe, and how these three basic instinctual fears are underlying the whole personality. So, you know, for people who are more familiar with the Enneagram Um, you're familiar with probably with the passions and fixations. One way to understand the passions and fixations, to understand the reactivity of each Enneagram type is as a reaction or a management of these three instinctual fears. So the three instinctual fears are for self-preservation, and this doesn't matter your stacking, this is just the fears. Um, The fear for self-preservation is a fear of scarcity and harm pretty straight up. I want to hear though, how this manifests though per type, we could give an example. So as a four, like what's an example of your fear of scarcity and harm? Like, what do you care about? For me as a self-pressed three, you know, we often get labeled as workaholics and I can relate with that because it's a lot about financial security. And I would show my love language through providing for you and taking care of you and being able to buy you what you want. Like that would sort of be how a self, how self-pres shows up in a point three? How does it show up in a point four? I just think that that's helpful. And of course, when we meet with people, they're going to want to know like, well, how does it show up for every point? And that's just a fun exercise oh, to sure. consider. Um, and maybe we want to do that a different day, but I don't know. While we're doing them, I just thought examples from our own personal experience might be interesting to listeners. No, definitely. Um, and, you know, it's a little complicated with four because... It always four, is. Because it always is. Because, <laughs> you know... that makes you special. Well, it's, it's trying to find identity through instinct. Yeah. And so the self-pres four and the self-pres in me is not necessarily trying to have the the the... You know, it's not trying trying to traditionally go for safety, not trying to go for like a lot of money or something, not trying to build a lot. But there's a sense that the my lifestyle, how I live, like the 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 actual means by which I'm living have significance for my sense of identity. Mm. So given us an example, what is what are the means by which you're living that are relevant to your identity? So like Am I like having an office job or am I working in a way, am I able to make an income and a living through a way that's something that's, that represents who I am in an authentic way? Yeah. You know, so self-pres fours will put a lot, and I mean, fours in general relating to their self-pres instinct, but especially self-pres fours will put a lot of self-pres stability at risk in order to live in a way that feels authentic to their identity. Totally makes sense. So like some self-pressed fours I know have like, like made their own clothes and like, uh, live like, like, uh, I don't know how to put it like survival primitive skills, but like in a way that's like got a lot of aesthetic flourish. It's not just like survivalism. It's like making often making clothes and, and crafts that are very personal and the old fashioned, you know, it's like 
this sense of how I survive is a statement on who I am. And there's a lot of frustration there in terms of if my, my lifestyle is actually reflective of something deeper. And so like, I mean, I'm self-present middle and nobody could, you know, Carrie, you can see me, but no, I don't know this will be recorded, but like, you know, my room, my, my environment is full of like artwork and different things that like are signals of my identity for myself. And it's like very aesthetically considered. So, so yeah. So like from a self-pres for point of view, it could not just be, Oh, I'm afraid of scarcity and harm in my body. But when it gets infused with the ego, it's a fear of scarcity and harm to my sense of self, right? right. Like, a, like I will die physically if I have to compromise this sense of identity I'm cultivating. Does that make so sense? I think that's one of the reasons why you don't like the self-press for being described as sunny, because oh, yeah. that um, characterization of like a sunny four, my impression is that that probably has more to do with their trifix. Like if they have seven and two energy, Maybe there are fours that are more sunny, but that's not having to do with the instinct. It's a te- separate thing. Like, yeah, where does I mean, that come from? Like, why why would we consider self-pressed fours to be sunny? For me, it seems more like trifix. To me, uh, the su- sunny self-pressed four is a nine. Okay. And I think it's a way that, like, I think that the way four and nine are described, they're both kind of still lacking in in the mainstream understanding and that you use words like sensitive for both and withdrawn and feeling different and how they relate to those things is very, very different depending on nine or four. But a lot of nines see themselves as fours. And so the sunny four is this like a four that supposedly does not express their negativity and kind of grins and bears it and wants to make other people not feel the brunt of their negativity. But that's like, like fours are a reactive image type. They're, no matter if they're self-present or not, they're broadcasting their I'm differentness and I'm negative quality, their reactivity in their image, their frustration in their image. So if you're hiding it for other well-being, that's a nine. So if you're not identifying with some level of negativity and being able to, because it's part of the emotional reactivity triad, if you're like, if you're like not able to just kind of say that, that's probably a big clue that you're not a four. Exactly. Yeah. Like fours are leading with their negativity and it's in their image. The same way that threes lead with their sense of value in their image. They're trying to represent that. Fours and their attitude and their appearance, their aesthetic, their interests are representing their differentness and their negativity and their I'm not on the same pageness. And so if you're right hiding your stuff like nines are far more sensitive and tumultuous all that uh, depressed all the other stuff that people generally do not ascribe to nines they are those things and if they're hiding that. it yeah, yeah. <laughs> you actually know a nine oh my god you know yeah. my girlfriend's a nine like yeah. they're very passionate tense people that the nine descriptions do not do nine justice so right. i'm all about making nine great again you know? Yeah. Well, and I just love imagining this self-press for, I really have a good image now of this person that is really, really fixated on, I'm going to make a living doing my authentic thing. And there's probably a lot of pain and suffering associated with that. Cause you know, if you don't sell out, it's kind of hard to do well in this community, in this country. Uh, I mean, I, I know a self-press for, and she lives in the woods in a tent 
like makeshift thing doing her own primitive skill stuff, but she's got like stomach issues and she she makes uh hides out of roadkill and all you know, and she's a really talented painter, but she she has to live in this like very um specific vision of what feels authentic to her and she's just hateful about everything else. And yeah. um yeah, has almost no money. Live yeah. you know, it's like it's it's her life looks really miserable from the outside and I think it's miserable on the inside, but it feels right in terms of her identity. Yeah. So it's like that domesticity piece. And it's really funny to think of like, oh, the domesticity that feels right for me is this tent in the woods. But that's right. true for that self-press four. Right. Okay, right. cool. So I, I feel like that was helpful just to describe like how this instinct shows up in a different point. So we did self-pres. Do you want to do the basic fear now for one of the other two instincts? Yeah, we'll do, we'll, we'll go for both sexual and so, and social, and then go through the, how that plays out in the stacking. Yeah. And then I think our uncovery of our own yeah. shit uh, will play into that. But Perfect. So like yeah, but, but I think that was good because self-pres doesn't get a lot of airtime often, you know, like people just go self-pres, they pay bills and they like to be cozy next, mm. you know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so for the, the basic fear. But I do on- pay bills and like to be cozy. So I just. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's like small piece of the pie, you know? I'm like, oh, like what's my perfect night? Like staying home, getting in my bathtub, lighting candles, reading a book and crawling into bed and like just being together. Yeah. Right, right. Um, self-pres dream. <laughs> so, so yeah, with sexual, uh, the underlying fear is the fear of being undesirable and sexually overlooked. And for a lot of people, especially if you're not a sexual type, this can sound like kind of silly. And like, I at least judge this big time in myself, the more I started seeing it, I used to try to dress it up as more like a romance drive or something like that. And I, it was uh, several experiences some of them on um i think i mentioned this previously like mdma experience where it was like really laid bare this intense fear i had about being not attractive and i thought it was superficial and i thought it was ridiculous and i did a lot of research in biology to try to figure out in anthropology and evolutionary psychology try to figure out why this this fear that my ego deemed to be very superficial absolutely dominated my personality in a way that I don't know up to that point I had not seen just how much it dominated so it's a very real fear and I think in the future I think did we talk about like I don't know we'll talk we can talk all about that in the future one well, sexual fours because we're using how ego you know how the 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 fixation then can color that in sexual fours have been described to me as like one of the angriest um, mm. number, you know, types on the Enneagram and also like very competitive, like either, um, you know, wanting to prove like superiority in the domain that they care about or whatnot. Um, that feels true to me. Does it feel true to you? Yeah. But with like, you know, just like everything, like redefined terms, you know, like, yeah. um, like angry, I would say that like the frustrated, you know, yeah. it's like they're they're very able and free ex- to express their frustration. Yes. Um, they don't have the one-ish, one and seven are also frustration types with four. Yeah. But seven has that kind of optimistic veneer that kind of keeps things mercurial and moving. They're frustrated they make by something. a lot of jokes about their frustration. Yeah. And they, they easily, when they're frustrated, they easily switch their attention to the next thing. 
Yeah. So there's not as much uh, entanglement with the frustrating object. Right. And then uh, with one, there there's obvious frustration in one, but there is this um, super ego around how frustration if it's correct frustration, if it's expressed the correct way, if yes. it's directed towards the right thing. Whereas four is double frustration, frustrated both the protective function and the nurturing function. They're an image type, so they have to express their frustration in their image as a frustration reactive type. And so that sense of dismissal and of like quick no and whatever, it's not like I'm angry in the sense of like classically angry but it's just, just frustrated and not having any super ego around need like my the expression of my frustration. In fact, yeah. I as a four, you think, oh, your frustration is kind of insightful or right in a certain way. There's a certain dis- like like narcissistic dismissal of things and like, you know, and 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 the frustration is to separate oneself from everything else. And so yeah. so there's it, it has an angry quality uh but like you know like maybe like a nine fixed self sexual four excuse me sexual four is not going to be as i don't know letting it fly or something yeah um well in my impression of sexual fours and how they express frustration differently than like a seven or a one is because many of the fours i know also um you know, they're withdrawn types and they feel like they have less energy. So it's like when you frustrate them, it's just like, no, like, no. (laughs) And it's just like, like, I don't have the energy to even go to why this is dumb. And if I'm going to expend the energy, I'm going to pay for this later. And I'm frustrated about the fact that you're taking my energy to explain to you why this is dumb. Like that's my perception. Totally. And it's not, it's not like, oh, I'm, I'm going to, like it's not like a nine-ish like oh i'm feeling frustrated but i'm a i'm like not gonna it's like there's there is an expression but yeah it's like there's this time energy balance thing too that's very odd but so have this emotional reactivity but they're almost frustrated with their reactivity it's like i wish i didn't waste energy this way and i wish you people weren't so stupid so i didn't have to waste my energy this way like it's kind of a it's like somebody flicking you off and then slamming the door in your face (laughs) you know it's that kind of quality and then the competition thing like i've seen often people online like think mistake this competition element for like like a kind of like a a diet three or something of like i'm gonna be really good at business or i'm gonna win the awards or like i saw somebody one time say something like yeah like a girl wasn't into me or something and so i spent the next like decade building up my financial empire or something like this so that i would be the most whatever she'd regret not being with me and like that's not a sexual strategy at all that's not you know sexual four is sexually competitive and it's sexually competitive by being the most unique like you're not going to find anybody like me most interesting most emotionally like i can meet you most emotionally more than any other fucking idiot can or something you know it's like there's this kind of competitive thing and there's a lot of hatred directed toward um, potential rivals. You know, like, I mean, I've caught my, I catch myself constantly disparaging uh, my partner's exes, you know, just, and ripping them apart and just like, you know, and sometimes playfully, sometimes not so playfully, but. Yeah. Well, and um, so just naming my experience from point three 
and the fact that it's in my blind spot. What I'm also finding interesting is that I have a very similar story that you do that I always felt like I was very unattractive. I was a very late bloomer. And yet, so it just didn't feel like something, but of course I could notice like wanting that, like wanting to be desirable, but feeling almost ashamed of showing that because it wasn't something that I actually connected with. Whereas my ability to be smart, my ability to do well in school, my ability to work and produce, my ability to be a good mom, you know, to kind of show up with the social face that Mm -hmm. um, works in my society felt like much more reliable. So I would say that as the sexual three, and what I think is also interesting in the blind spot is that I will feel jealousy, but... I also feel some shame even about that. I feel like my social is so much more dominant Mm. that I'm like, of course you had other people and so did I. And we should all just get along and be able to hang out. And like, what's this whole jealousy thing? And if I notice jealousy coming up inside of me, that's something that I should work to transform and, you know, get to a more compassionate place with. And I expect others to do that. And I think that that's what being sexual blind looks more like, is that when people are entering this more rivalry, this more like, I'm going to be aggressive because I'm perceiving you to be sexual competition, like that kind of blows the mind of a sexual blind, I think. It's like, wow, how could you generate that much energy about that? Right, right. Yeah. And like, you know, somebody with a sexual blind spot can feel all the same kind of like rivalry, whatever feelings that a sexual dominant can, but they're pretty good at talking themselves out of it. Mm-hmm. Like you, you know, were saying like, it feels oh, it's embarrassing. Not- like, right. that's just like, not, yeah, it's not pretty. Whereas I'm like, uh, full on about like, I'm a jealous asshole and like, not, there's no sense of feeling embarrassed about it, really. There's just like, this is what it is. And being kind of like provocative about it. Um, yeah. Like for me, that's deceit can fly there. Like I can, I just will refuse to acknowledge my jealousy. Like I just yeah. don't really want to do that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Cool. I wish I could do that. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that's the sexual uh, fear. And then the, the lastly, the social fear. It's fear of being ostracized and abandoned. Is the the social instinct in all of us is reacting to this, but depending on where it is in our stacking, it'll have a different quality of uh, what will we relating to it in a different way and managing it in a different way. Yeah. So, how does that show up for like a social four? Like, how would it show up in four? Because if you're blind, like it seems like you just kind of accept that you're ostracized and abandoned. It's just like that's just how it is. Just kind of like for me, it's like sexual blind. It's like, oh, well, I'm not going to be desirable. Like, you know, what's the point of jealousy? I won't win there. So it seems like almost where you're blind, it's like hard to imagine that believing you could have an experience like what the dominant person has. It's right. it's just sort of pushed away, it seems. Yeah. So that's, I mean, this is a really interesting question because... You know, so there's in a like a social dominant four, there's this tension between wanting to be unique and showing everybody that I'm different and that I'm not on the same page and yet wanting to connection and belonging while being different and a little bit removed. And so generally social fours do gravitate towards signs and uh, symbols and aesthetics and scenes that like 
cater to kind of like a misfit outsider, but they like they like being the outsider, you know, but being an, being an insider in the outsiders in a certain way. Yeah. And that strategy of being sort of the sad four, you know, when they talk about the social four in that way, it's kind of like, I want to show up in a way that's going to draw you in because, you know, like that, that's how I've always sort of experienced the social four is that please notice that I'm sad. Please notice that get curious about me. It, does that resonate? What I, what I've typically seen more is the elitist for the mm. like, okay. the snobby elitist, like almost untouchable, unreachable, like kind of for like, they're showing you their, it's not just exclusive as if like, oh, I have the most exclusive club, but it's like, there's, there's an elusive, it's like, you can tell that there's some indication of, of something obscure yet valuable and mysterious and enticing that you want to connect with them on, but they're also kind of withholding it at the same time. And I think we might be talking about different stackings because that sounds social sexual to me. Whereas what I was describing could be a little more social self-prez, like if, the, if they're sexual blind, because then I don't think you'll see as much of that elitism in a four that's sexual blind is my thought. Maybe so, but uh, my experience of both both stackings has been that kind of elitism, okay. but it has a little bit of different flavor. Yeah. Um, and that's something that I think to, we can get into eventually, but yeah. your well, point about- Well, this is our, where we live too. Like you're right. dealing with people in Manhattan- I'm thinking right. of like sad social four housewives that <laughs> like don't fit in here and, you know, but are different and, you know, so I just think that it, it, the context and the culture, you're going to see sure. so many different types in different places. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you're asking about my, how it shows up in my blind spot and you're correct that there's a sense of like, I'm already outside or I'm already rejected and I kind of like cultivate it and kind of like it in a certain way. Like, there's a certain provocative quality and a kind of permissiveness to be outside of what the rules other people feel compelled to follow. But at the same time, and something that's been much more unconscious is what I spoke to in the part that we're going to add to that, that we talked about at the beginning that we're going to add to the end of this conversation, which is this actual desire to have like a real love and connection and acceptance that's unconditional and, you know, a connection of just a one-on-one -on -one connection, but it's a social connection of being seen and, and seeing, being with somebody in a really intimate way that because of my instinctual stacking, uh, I thought to get that kind of love, I had to be a sexual object. Yeah. And so there's this like hidden little heartbreak and with, with my girlfriend who's sexual blind, and I can't remember, we talked about this in the part that's going to be moved around, but just to say that we have this joke that she's the real sexual type because she was trying to get that sexual merging transcendence through connection and being like, and having this like, being with a partner that there's like, check the certain social boxes. And I was trying to use the sexual instinct to get to this like love and, and, and connection thing. I didn't even, you know, I didn't even recognize that. What was I trying to do? How would you, how would a self-prez sexual blind do that? Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it'd be something kind of uh, like in, in your court to answer, but I would imagine something along the lines of if you have a safe container and a real, like you have a real safe container and a container that contains real relationships, then that sort of merging transcendence can be possible. Mm. Or what's coming up for me, and I was just genuinely asking, Yeah. Um, but 
what's coming up for me is that maybe if I create this world that somebody else is going to want to be a part of because mm-hmm. it's safe and it's secure and it's warm and it's nice here, yeah. that then this is how I'll experience that sexual union and transcendence. Yes. And then people move in with me and realize that I have, you know, four kids and a dog and parents that are here. And, you know, there's like, it's a lot. It's, you know, it never looks quite as like romantic and beautiful as you might build it up to be in your mind. Yeah. Right. Um, Yeah. And so, you know, this is where I come back to that mother bond. I think the social instinct has so much to do with the mother bond. So for as much shit as I will probably give my parents on this podcast, because we all give our parents shit because, you know, where else would we form our object relations? Right. You know, I think I'm social middle because the one thing that I know with more certainty than anything else is this undying support and love and attachment that I have with my mom and my dad. Now, because of their own instinctual stuff, they sometimes have interesting ways of expressing that, that, um, you know, I'll reference from time to time. But I really think that it's this mother-child bond, which is where we first experience that safety of social. And so I'm going to be really curious to just see what we unpack around that as we interview people. Yeah. These instincts have competing interests. And so when we act upon one, we often are sacrificing something within another. So in some way, it feels like this work is about like, so when, when, when we think about each one of these instincts, what is it that I'm so attached to? Like, what about that instinct raises the juice for me? Like what, you know, where, where's the charge? And then if I and noticing because like, so I'm bringing this into the Buddhist psychology. This is partially why I love David's work because in Buddhist psychology, everything is about, you know, basically greed or aversion, you know, basically Mm -hmm. I want it, I'm leaning into it or I'm not wanting it, I'm pushing away from it. And so when we look at the instincts, we can really think about, so for example, self-prez, I want money because that's going to make me feel safe. Um, I'm trying to think of like what we push away from in self-prez might be sensations in the body. I don't know. I'm just like- I mean, it could just be certain kinds of risk. Okay. So we push away from Avoiding like- for one self-prez type, it can be, I love to travel and I go everywhere, but I sacrifice a stable living situation. For another self-prez type, it can be, I want a really stable living situation, but I'm sacrificing getting outside a comfort zone, you know? And that could yeah. just be within the self-prez instinct itself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, like, when you're talking about this, like, social versus sexual, like, do I want the connection and the friendship, but if I take it into sexual... And then it doesn't work out. We're probably never going to be friends the way that we were again. Totally. So it's like you're sacrificing that warm, safe, comfortable zone for something that's a lot more juicy, but also you'll never go back to that nice, warm, comfortable zone again. Right. Yeah. Right. And right. when I'm thinking of sexual, like, like, what are you sacrificing? I remember you writing about how if I disperse my energy into the social realm I'm not going to have that intensity that I bring into sexual. I, is, did I get that right? Yeah. I'm going to dilute my flavor. Right. And similarly, like with self-prez, like if I take this boring nine to five job, I'm also going to dilute my flavor. Right. Yeah. Right. I love that. Okay, cool. Yeah. So now you have me thinking about what is it that I do to keep my sexual blind spot 
from threatening my self-pres dominant and my social dominant. And now that you put it that way, it's so incredibly obvious. And I think I am so drawn to this work because I did such a bad job of integrating my sexual instinct during the first 36 years of my life that it then sort of started running the show, but not in an integrated way. And for anybody who is listening, I'm going to advise that you listen to John's other podcast, Big Hormone Enneagram, on July 26th, because Nancy made a very astute observation as a self-pressed social sexual blind three. And she said, you know, I think that a lot of sexual blind women then suddenly sort of have this like midlife crisis zone or something in later life. And, you know, it's just amazing to me that I think she's newly married and is also married to a nine, which is what I was married to. And when I hear her talk about things, I'm just like, wow, if I had known the Enneagram when I was married, I just think that we would have related to each other in such a different way. But my ex-husband was a self-pressed social sexual blind nine as well. And what do we know about self-pres people? Because he also had three and five fixes. So we worked. We worked and we worked and we worked and we worked. And because social was second, we had four babies. And we moved out into the suburbs and we created this very traditional self-pres social life, which is very comfortable and is very safe. But I'm just speaking from my own experience that it really did lack the color. And we didn't have any consciousness or awareness uh, or even like great communication patterns for really knowing what that was or developing more skillful ways to be with that. So the strategy that we agreed upon on the time was to open our marriage. And um, I don't have opinions on to whether that was a good idea or a bad idea, but I just think that at our level of psycho-spiritual development in our mid-30s that we had no idea what we were doing. And that's basically inviting the sexual instinct into play and it's not conscious. So I think the important thing that I want listeners to hear is that I think we really need a lot of support when we start working with the blind spot. Because as Nancy kind of references, I think that many women who are sexual blind sometimes wake up in midlife, which is why I think menopause is one of these times where we think that women go crazy because they suddenly don't put up with the things from their husbands that they once did, and they're just not as willing to sacrifice for the kids, and they really want to start living for themselves. It's like here's the opportunity to reclaim what matters to me. And the sexual instinct may disrupt the security of the self-pres and the relationships that are happening in the social. So I think Nancy was really onto something there when she was talking about this whole phenomenon with middle-aged women. So I think part of the reason why I am so interested in continuing this conversation about the instincts is because I personally dove into my blind spot the way only a 
three, seven, one with a two wing fix can do. There was like just no withdrawn energy. There was a lot of just direct moving in and it blew things up. I mean, we ended up getting divorced. We're both, um, you know, navigating our paths. And I think that we tried to manage this as best that we could, but it definitely has not been easy. And I would say that I have become aware of how important it is to navigate this blind spot zone with a lot of kindness and compassion and support because I think we're going to do it in a messy way. It's been blind. So when we start bringing the blind spot online, I think we're a little bit like toddlers that just... You know, you're trying to pour something and you're going to spill, you know, like whatever you do is not going to feel good and you're going to make mistakes. So the more compassion that we can hold for ourselves as we move into this zone, because I know from direct experience, when I screw something up in my sexual blind spot, there's a part of me that just wants to shut down and go back to what I know, which is self-press social and just keep living that way. And yet once you taste it, once you realize what it's bringing to your life, it's like you can't go back. So when I look at the decisions that I've been making around thinking that I needed to have a certain level of lifestyle or financial security, or that I needed to have a certain level of social clout or connection, you know, any of these three-ish ways that self-press social shows up are things that I now get really suspicious of. So when I am dating, I really, really notice what my instinct is tuning into. And then I just invite curiosity. Like, can I actually open myself up to the vibe that's here, separate from whatever self-pressed social instinctual needs that I think this person might meet? And I really want it to be clear that when we're talking about the sexual instinct, it's not just about dating. It's about all of those zones in our life where the sexual instinct expresses itself. So for me, this is work. And I actually have brought on a colleague that I am now bringing in as a full-time partner in my practice so that I can step back and really devote my energies to this podcast and to some writing that I'm going to be doing this year. And also just this not knowing around how things are going to evolve. And None of this makes me any money at this point. Um, That can be really scary. And yet I really feel drawn to continue to explore this zone. So it's very, very clear to me how my sexual threatens my self-pres and even my social because having these conversations feels really vulnerable and I have no idea how the audience is going to judge me, is going to hear these things. And yet part of leaning into veracity is what 
it feels like to me is just not making what's happened in my life pretty or right or wrong. And even as I say that, one of my teachers, Jessica Dibbs, has this concept of the transparent veil. And I really want to be aware of this tendency to even do personal growth the right way or to be elegant in my blind spot or to be sounding like an expert. There's just so many things and layers that are coming up for me that I don't know, do I even want to just screw up in the quote unquote right way? I feel my one fix coming through when I look at that. So I'm curious, John, I just want to see if that is also true for you with your blind spot. Is there something in social that you just can't put back to sleep now that you've seen it and now that you've tasted it and you know the color it brings into your life? Right. Absolutely. But I'm wondering if that's true for you. Like, have you touched into things about social that really matter to you? that you can't put back to sleep or does the social instinct still seem completely annoying and you wish you could just live in self-pressed sexual land? Uh, well, I'm definitely annoyed with how much I now recognize I need social. And what I would say is I'm, it's, it's like there's that element and at the same time. But sexual brings me joy now. Like hmm. it's sure. very scary. And I mean, you know, even the whole idea that I don't want to be a doctor anymore and I'd like to be an Enneagram teacher. And I know that that's going to really fuck with my self-pres lifestyle. You know, <laughs> yeah. like that is like this tension that I live in, but yet that sexual causes joy. So I'm almost willing to have the sacrifice. Does the yeah. social, has it brought you joy? Like, or are you a four or five that you don't really connect with joy? Is joy too strong joy of an emotion? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Um, no, the way I would put it is, so the most immediate kind of like recognizable for my own personality hit that it's brought is that it has deeply enhanced the kind of, like when I talk about like loss of self in the instinct, like I think that, I think that the sexual instinct awake or asleep kind of goes for that. But I feel like the sense of um, losing myself in a genuine merging transcendent way is now possible because the social instinct I'm not only connected to the person I'm with Alexandra I'm connected to myself in a way I didn't know I could be connected or consider or include myself so like there's been a lot of suffering and a lot of regret and a lot of just like 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 yeah just um it's been a rough thing of seeing how empty so many things that I thought were meaningful at the time were actually completely empty because I was not including my social instinct and I was like letting what? myself be, sorry. Like what was, what was not meaning, you know, that you thought Past was meaningful. Relationships, uh, both romantic relationships, but also like just, just even friendships that I didn't really see myself as a person. And so I might've like had fun with a person or something like that. And I mistook it for a deeper or more profound connection but my personhood was not really considered and I wasn't seeing the way that I was basically being disrespected or mm. not seeing myself. I was just kind of like. So you were there, tolerating like a, a, behaviors that you wouldn't tolerate now? 
Yeah, like like subtle stuff, but it's stuff that I recognize like cumulatively is a sign that somebody is not actually respecting me for me and is more like using me because I'm fun or because I'm so interesting objectified. for something. I'm objectified in one way or another, mm-hmm. you know, or like I'm like, like, uh, you know, my, my former best friend, you know, mm-hmm. like, I don't know if, if he, if he like really included the sense, like, I feel like I respected him as a person, but I don't know if he did respect me in that way. Maybe I was, but I, I was, I felt like the, the, at least from my side, it was such a genuine friendship, but there was ways that I was being kind of treated and disregarded. Like, I don't know if this person would have actually been my friend if I'd sort of demanded the level of like respect and consideration. Now, obviously he betrayed you, but were there other things that made you feel like he didn't respect or consider you before that? Yeah, there weren't like uh, huge things or something like that, but there were ways which um, there were like little, like little weird things around the way, but it was, there was generally kind of like an attitude of, like I knew I could engage him with certain things, and then outside of that was like I couldn't at all engage him, mm-hmm. you know. And so it was sort of like, um, like what in retrospect now is like, oh, like he actually didn't give a shit about who I was unless it was somehow fun, and you know, or something. Like it was mm-hmm. somehow like apart from yeah. this narrow band of what was like what he enjoyed. Uh, there wasn't like a consideration of of me and 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 my like needs outside of just yeah uh, like a basically like a, a a playmate drinking buddy or whatever. So, is a little bit of what I'm hearing is that when you talk about connecting with your social instinct, there's something about the social instinct in which like I care about you and you care about me because there's a bond between us that rises above what I can do for you and what you can do for me. It's that, you know, we're like a team and we're together and I've got your back and you've got mine and maybe I don't like everything about you and maybe you don't like everything about me, but you know, we're just, we're in this together. Like you're part of my pack and it just didn't really feel like that. And so to imagine that what the support of a pack might be like is something that you're leaning into. Yeah, I mean, even a pack of two, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. Just like... Well, like the pod's a pack. Like you've got a pack in your pod, the BHE. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, even even just like, like, like I mean, for me, what's been like very revelatory is just the way it enhances one-on-one dynamics and relationships, whether romantic or friendships. Like, like, oh, like I wasn't seeing my social instinct at all. And I wasn't including that. And so like... I mean, just in terms of romance, like I absolutely just saw myself as completely like a sexual object that was like my value was based on my dick and my performance and my body and how many orgasms I could deliver and all these kind of things like this. And it wasn't really about being like connected to me. Yeah. Like I just love you just because you're you and I love being with you even when we're not having sex. I love right. you when we're sitting on the couch watching television and I love you when we're walking in the park and I love you when we go to a party together. And yeah, I love that you can give me orgasms too. <laughs> there was like no sense of, uh, like, again, it's sort of like shitty to like think about, but like just enjoying being in each other's atmosphere. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm like, I'm with a social nine now who is all about the vibing and the atmosphere. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, a, like, I mean, it's, it is, it is amazing. Uh, the level or the, the, like the, the lack of connectivity I thought was absolutely normal and acceptable for so many years. And then yeah. versus like what's happening now. And so like, I'm coming out the, uh, at the end of it, but there was like the past year was like a lot of like grieving mm-hmm. uh, that all this, sh- like, you know, I've by a lot of external standards, I think I've had like a really interesting life, like, cause I mm-hmm. travel all over the place and I have kind of unconventional work and all this kind of stuff. But uh, there's this also like this profound feeling of its emptiness, mm. given the lack of the connectedness underneath so many of those things that I just didn't know was there. And so like, yeah, I mean, when things turned with my ex and I made moves to split things off, like uh, my family turned on me for a while. Yeah. You told me that. Like pretty intensely. And like, as soon as they heard my side of the story, they like completely reversed, but it was like, it was that thing where like, like there wasn't even that there wasn't even that thing with my own family like a, a sense of connectedness at all like to yeah. the point where they would even ask me what my side of the story was yeah there wasn't they, really like they, safety they, in the relationship not not even curiosity yeah. not even like what is john might be experiencing or what there was you just know like and rejection then they heard, yeah in the exactly beginning. yeah anger and rejection and shame on you and all this kind of stuff like this and and mm. then like, I mean, much more intense than that, but it was like, these are like my, like my parents and my family, yeah. you know, and I don't expect this to be close, but just to like, like, what have I done in my life that I've ever seemed reckless and irresponsible? Yeah. Like, like I know I'm a sexual type, but I like, I'm a very, like, I take, I take things very seriously and I've never been like frivolous by any means. And so. I was being treated like, and I was like, oh, there's like no sense of knowing me and, and there's no yeah. actual connectedness. And so that yeah. was like, there was just so many different levels where it was like, like through my work relationships, through my friendships, through my former romantic, it was all like empty, 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 empty. Yeah. So it was just like horrifying. Well, I think what I heard you say that you can, re- that you're really highlighting is the importance of curiosity and warmth. And that when we're in an integrated social space, we know we're there because there's curiosity and warmth. Whereas like yeah. when we're in a, when we're in an integrated sexual space, it's like intense and hot and connected. And like, we're in like that loss of self flight. And when we're in a integrated self pres place, I would say like we're building and producing and, um, you know, would you say growing. those are good like categories of what those feel like? Yeah. 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 Like, yeah. Growing for self prize. Like there's always some sort of mm-hmm. growth or vibrancy or life. And for mm-hmm. sexual, there's this chemistry and unpredictable quality and renewal and, yeah. you know, turning creativity. things over. Yeah. Creativity and, 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 and like, you know, molecules Discovery. fusing and, and coming yeah. apart, that kind of a thing. And yeah. yeah, for social, there's this like, there's a sense safety. of safety of being, of, of curiosity, wanting to be known, to know, yeah. to explore, to yeah. uh, to witness one another, yeah, um, and to feel uh, to feel like there's some place when that like exile feeling cut kicks up that like yeah. there's some place you're not exiled, you know, yeah, even you if know, you've done something wrong or some shit, it's like, like that your natural endorphins are going, 
you're mm-hmm. like those endorphins that give you that sense of security and calm. And, right. and it's like the sexuals all run by dopamine and norepinephrine and like has like the charge right. and, you know, and self-pres, if we want to continue the analogy, I would imagine that that may be run a little bit more by serotonin. And I'm coming to that because there was this book called Why Him, Why Her that was written by um, Helen Fisher, who was the advisor to Match.com about what is it that attracts people to each other and what is it that ends up not being a good match. And she has this one category called builders. And she had a lot of research that indicated that building was run off of the serotonin system. So when I heard you talk about self-pres being growth, um, yeah, there is sort of that calm you know, sweet sense that I have a base. And I think that that's often run by serotonin, which is why we prescribe serotonin reuptake inhibitors for anxiety and depression. It helps you have a sense of your base, I believe. I just want to name that sometimes we get stuck on a certain person as a strategy. So if I am looking for that sexual one-to-one and somebody dumps me, I'm so heartbroken because it's like, oh, they were meeting that need and I'll never find that chemistry ever again. And as all of us know who were in love with one person and then have found love with another person, that's not really true. Similarly with social, when there's some connection that doesn't work out, we can have this feeling of, oh, I'll never enter that social sweet spot of connection and growth and learning and uh, co-creation again. And yet when we are brave enough to step back out and see what's there, it's amazing the resources that we find. And for anybody who's struggling in a self-pres zone, maybe we have screwed something up and we're finding ourselves in some financial stress or there's something in our home that's just falling apart that we didn't attend to or our personal health is failing. And it's very easy to just get demoralized and say, I just want to give up. So I just want to highlight that these areas are so tender. And as we move forward and as I continue to interview people, that's really my goal is to invite people to talk about these tender areas and just know that there is no right There is no wrong. We're all figuring it out. And I really look forward to having the opportunity to continue this conversation with John next week, as well as all the other people that are stepping forward that I'm really excited to have these conversations with. So thank you, everyone. And we'll see you next week. If you enjoyed this, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts and various Android platforms. If you leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps a lot. If you have any questions you'd like addressed in a future episode, please email me at contact at enneagramblindspots.com. I also offer a wide variety of services at my practice while SNSMD, including typing services, Enneagram coaching, nonviolent communication training, and mindfulness trainings for working with stress, anxiety, and food cravings. Feel free to call my office at 847-850-8185 to schedule a free consultation.